Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Ball Guy podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, Chris LaSpada. Hello, people. This is Jeff Brown, known as the Ball Guy around the country. Welcome to this podcast with one of my elite tax experts, Chris LaSpada. How you doing, Chris? Good. Thanks, Jeff. Today, we're going to talk about Structuring investment real estate sales for the purpose of lowering tax liability. Chris, if an owner carries back financing for part of the purchase price, how might that be treated tax-wise? That gets treated as an installment sale. And how that works is you calculate the gain on the sale. And if it is paid over time, which is what you were referring to, then the amount of principal received in a year would then be taxed according to how much has been received. So, for example, if you did receive a 50% down payment in the first year and then if you paid off over five years, 50% of the total profit would be taxed in the first year and then the remainder of the profit would be taxed as that money is received in the future years. Now, my understanding of the principal paydowns of each year realized by the uh, the note owner is that some of that principal is considered by the tax code to be return of principal and some return on principal. Is that formula, what you just talked about with capital gain, is, is that involved there? Does that formula kind of tell each owner how much of that principal pay down each year is going to be return of capital and therefore not taxed, and how much is taxable capital gain? Correct. Typically, when the when the gain on the sale is calculated in the initial year, there's a form that reports on the tax return what we call the gross profit percentage. So then that gross profit percentage gets applied to future principal payments to determine how much of that is basically return a principal and how much of that payment is capital gain. There's always interest attached to that, and that interest is just normal interest income in the year received. And that's taxed as ordinary income, correct? The interest income, yes. Very good, very good. Now, when we're splitting up the timing on the down payment into separate tax years, let me explain that. I haven't done it in a while, but every now and then you get towards the end of the year and my client seller may be trying to split up the tax liability on his capital gain bill over more than one tax year. So, for instance, an example would be one time we closed an escrow sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and the down payment was, say, $150,000. Well, they put half of that, $75,000, down in one year, and then a few weeks later when the new year started, they put 37.5 principal pay down on the note he carried, so that acted as another part of his down payment. Then a year later in the first week of January of the following year, they came up with the other 37.5, and that was the 150 down payment. What do you think about that as a strategy? Well, I think it has a lot of merit because as you're looking at how to do these potential sales and when to do them, one of the things you're going to look at is what is your tax bracket going to be for that particular year. 
So if a transaction were to put you in the highest tax bracket for that particular year and also possibly, let's say you're not in the highest tax bracket, but let's say you're over 250000 and that will add in the 3.8% net investment income tax. So because you have that, and then also if you are in the highest bracket, your capital gain rate could be 50, will be 20% instead of 15%, you will look at options like this because you might say that if I only had to claim a third of the sale in the current year, I wouldn't be in the highest bracket. I could still be paying capital gains at 15%. Or if it wasn't going to get you that high, you could also take the position of if I take a third of the sale, I won't get over 250000 so I won't have to pay the 3.8% net investment income tax on that because everything affects all your other income for that year. So that's why exactly. you would look at that strategy to determine whether you know it would work for you, especially looking ahead too. You might know for some reason, maybe you know that your income is going to be lower in a future year or or maybe that you might be able to create a capital loss in a future year. So you have to look at all of that when determining you know, what the structure of the deal should be. Boy, those are all critical points. Thanks, Chris. Moving on, one of the things that we used to see in bad years, bad economic years, I mean, was where uh, more and more sellers of investment properties, if they indeed wanted to sell and were that motivated, carried back some or all of the finance. But they would still need cash. And one of the ways we did it was we would close the sale they would have their note, however large it was, and then we would go out and shop for lenders. Back in the days of 70s and 80s, we could actually get banks to loan using the notes as collateral. But uh, these days, there's a lot of people making eight-tenths of a percent or one percent on their CDs, would love to have four or five percent and have it secured by maybe two to one by the note in terms of value. What do you think about that? Well, I think anything that you can use to your advantage, such as, you know, everybody thinks that, that, you know, all debt is bad. Well, in this example, you know, incurring a debt based off of an asset you own uh, would not be bad debt. I mean, because basically what you would be doing here is taking one deal and leveraging it to maybe possibly do two deals or multiple deals. So I think that's pretty important for an investor to understand how can they leverage the assets that they do have into being able to do one deal or two deals or three deals because the more deals they're able to do, the quicker they're able to accumulate you know, more assets, more passive cash flow, which is what everyone's after. Exactly. And the key factor here for many people who want to borrow using a note they own as collateral is that, generally speaking, it's tax-free by definition of the tax code, right? Correct. Right. So that's that's why, you know, you see the strategy a lot. Anytime you can take advantage of the code to get tax-free money now and turn that into a double-digit return, uh, you are definitely using the laws to your advantage. Now let's shift over to 
One question about tax deferred exchange as it relates to structuring investment real estate sales for the purpose of lowering taxes. Is it possible to have an installment treatment and a partial tax deferred exchange on the sale of one property? Sure. I mean, you can have a partial like kind exchange where you're only deferring some of the capital gains tax, but then you're also recognizing, uh, recognizing the gain. So, that gain that's recognized is typically the cash proceeds received, where it's possibly a reduction, a reduction on the uh, replacement property debt. That one comes to our attention by us reviewing the documents. The investor is not always on top of that, that they're going to have to recognize a gain there. They just look at it as, I still have a mortgage. What do you mean I have a gain here? But um, if their reduction, if there's a reduction on the replacement property debt, that's also just like them receiving cash, which would become taxable in that year. Oh, exactly. And I and you and I have both seen this. I've seen it many times in my years, Chris, where the net proceeds might have been four figures, but they had a, a relatively large capital gains tax liability because the, the, the formula has, has nothing to do with your current equity or anything else. Or if it's like the situation where if the bank is doing one bank's doing the same financing and they're just replacing one loan for the other at a different amount, then if that debt has decreased, that is, you know, just the same as them receiving cash at settlement. Exactly. And people just don't understand that. They're not aware of it, which is why I just I beg people to hire professionals to do their tax returns, even though they may own just one or two small homes as rentals, they just don't realize that when they start to sell one and they, they really don't think they have a capital gain, it is a very dark day when they get the surprise that, yeah, they do own it and it's several thousand dollars. Well, we did have an example one time of a client who told us they did a like-kind exchange, yet walked away from the settlement table with a check. Luckily, they let us know uh, right after that happened, they were able, I don't know if this can always happen, but they were able to undo the like-kind exchange and redo the exchange so it was done properly. So a lot of times the very short definition we give to a client when they discuss that they are either interested or about to do a like-kind exchange, we always let them know that if that's what they want, that they should not receive any money at the settlement table. Now, if they do, then maybe it's a situation of a partial exchange and they're just not savvy enough to understand, you know, the situations in which that would occur. But most of the time, we'll run into, they think that they're deferring all of the gain, yet they receive some money, and then that's when it's the eye-opener when you're reporting the tax liability about an unexpected liability because you are reporting that cash received as capital gain. Oh, and I've had occasion uh, over the last 30, 40 years, maybe not a lot, but maybe half a dozen times, Chris, where I've had other brokers call me for advice. And one of them, this is my favorite story, they were a week from closing, and he told me we're all set to do a like-kind exchange uh, using the 1031 rules we're going to take the check, and we established a 
a bank account that's going to be a separate standalone account so the IRS knows he didn't really do anything. And I'm going, no, 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 no. <laughs> he, no. <laughs> you, need a, you need what the IRS calls an accommodator, and they're the ones that get the check. And I went through all that rigmarole with them. And uh, five or six times I've saved a seller's bacon because somebody came to me and asked a, an innocent question. And a couple of sad times they told me this, you know, three or four weeks after an escrow had closed. And I had to be the bearer of bad news. Well, listen, thanks for answering all these questions, Chris. It's 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 been a pleasure. I have an idea. We've given nothing but steak and taters to listeners today. Sounds good. <laughs> you like that, huh? <laughs> I like that. So, listeners, thank you so much for listening in, and we'll see you next time out. Thanks for listening to the Bald Guy Podcast with Jeff Brown and our guest, Chris LaSpada.